never bored. I'm never bored. And I think I'm part of the minority of people on the planet that has art in them that, you know, I know how to get art out of myself. And I think everybody has art in them, but they don't know how to get the art out of themselves. That's why we need better educational systems and trainers and situations that even in the British Isles, they realize that what what to do with these, you know, these World War II kids who might have not had a father and a country that is trying to rebuild itself. And they said, well, if we don't figure something out, you know, most of the nation's gonna be coming from incorrigible kids. And so they gave kids art programs and sports programs. And I think that, that you know, held the fort for a while. So I think art is a beautiful thing. And I think that most of the people in the world are consumers of art, not producers, but you could be taught how to produce it and get back to the arts as being, to, to me, it's a universal utopian religion. This week's guest is by any measure one of the most influential figures of the last 40 years of American music. Chuck D, best known as the leader and lyricist of the Long Island hip-hop group Public Enemy, addressed with thunderous vocals and hyperliterate invectives the eternal American neuroses around race, politics, culture and media. Chuck recently returned to his first love, the visual arts, with the illustrated memoir Livin' Loud, Art Itation, in which he accompanies reflections on an extraordinary career with portraits of the musicians, athletes and places which inspired him. I'm Andrew Muller and I spoke to Chuck D for the big interview. I wanted to start by asking about the art in your book, Live and Loud. And I, I wondered if for somebody who has become best known for working with words, you've you, you've had some kind of sense of frustration at the instant impact that the visual artist can have. The image is just right there. People don't need to to sit with it before they necessarily grasp its meaning. Yeah, I don't know if I I don't I don't know what you mean by frustrations. Um I never looked at it that way. I think my frustrations that really immersed this art to take place in the first place was my intolerance to hotel rooms. <laughs> uh, I think uh, when I found out that Ron Wood of the Rolling Stones, you know, just sketches his room before he enters it, or at least that's what he used to do, a light bulb went off in my head. It went, ding, okay, it's something to do with my downtime, uh, especially with Prophets of Rage and my most recent years, we'd go into a city and, and be, you know, rendezvous there about three days. I guess most people would be like going to the bar, going to the city's, uh, you know, places to go. But after you've been to the city more than 10 or 15 times, it's like, okay, uh, you have to make the most out of your hotel room. That's where a lot of this emerged. The book is kind of an illustrated autobiography. And is it right that the visual arts is, it's sort of where you saw yourself in the beginning. You you saw yourself as a graphic artist. Yeah, as an illustrator. I wanted to be an illustrator. Graphic artist, I think, was next in line. Painter, fine artist was further down the line. And that really wasn't my desire. But um, illustrator is what, the, at least the name caught my fancy. Somebody who didn't spend long at trying to come up with something in two dimensions 
jot it quick, what hits my mind and deliver it. But I think the technical aspect of what we had as tools in front of us, such as social media, made it a different outlet for my skill set than ever any time before. The immediacy, the ability to see something in front of you uh, socially or politically and then be able to, to turn it over in an instant. It was even better than, I guess, what newspapers had done in previous centuries to talk about something. It was kind of like the meshing of of the future with the skills of the past. There's a couple of other suggestions in the book of paths that a, a younger you might have taken. I was intrigued by the idea that at one point you wanted to be a sportscaster. You, you wanted to be a, a commenter on, on basketball and baseball games. How seriously did you take that ambition? To the point that I wanted to also be an illustrator for sports as well. The newspapers in New York City uh, were able to, to seriously cover the sports pages and have a cartoonist such as a guy like Bill Gallo. The illustrators for sports were very important in the 70s and uh, they were influential to me just as much as the sports pages talking about the games. So, uh, I mean, you know, to see something and then, then put your, your mind to it. At my young age, it was like something that I felt that I can do. It definitely wasn't about the comic books. Once again, it was a, a media immediacy factor. I was like, wow, okay, let me go work on my speed. So that's one of the things I was able to do at university is to work on my speed and have a good sense of anatomy. <laughs> is it too much of a reach, though, to suggest that the the influence of that ambition and the sportscasters who nurtured it became an influence on you as a vocalist. It, it just struck me reading that section of the book that so much of the great sportscasters' talent is finding that right phrase to sum up a moment. Did the sportscasters influence you as a as a writer and as a vocalist? I think so. I think it was also a form of osmosis and how it just like kind of like seeped into me inadvertently and, and and it came out in the wash, so to speak. You know, I don't think with the future that we have now with the technology and social media that any of these skills would have been evident to a mass populace. I would just say say that uh, it's been helpful in all the ways. And I, I guess I was also influential in bringing the internet and digital media to sort of like even help and enhance music or peer-to-peer getting it across to somebody. So it, this is like a side effect that is, uh, has been something that has taken it from a hobby stage into something that, that a lot of people want. I mean, it, got, it happened also to happen from a point where, you know, I would post things on social media and Twitter because I don't do Instagram, although it's run by my team and, you know, uh, TikTok and YouTube and whatever. But it got to a point, you know, the, the response of, how do I get this? <laughs> you know, do you sell your prints? And I mean, it, it got to a point where like, okay, I think we got to make something out of this because previously I was just say, you know, hey, you know, pull it down, make a copy of it. Oh, well, it's not high definition enough. And, you know, so it, it, it actually grew into something else. And, you know, I wanted to also, I think I was telling people, I said, listen, I'm doing this thing anyway, Andrew. But people kept asking for it, and I wanted to say, hey, listen, I want you to know that I'm an artist that did rap music, not a rap artist that 
happened to do the arts. I've been involved with the arts ever since I was zero. Just something that happened to be the right person at the right time in the right era to propose these type of skills. So I'm not the first, but I think one thing I want to do in the hip hop nation is say, in hip hop, the five elements are graffiti, DJing, breakdancing, and and also the arts. I mean, well, arts is graffiti. I'm breakdancing, also vocalization on the microphone, emceeing. And then Dougie Fresh sometimes says the fifth element is beatboxing, which I think is vocalization, but, but and also musicianship. But yeah, it was one of those things where the art is still an aspect of hip hop's creativity. And I have a little bit of that in my works too. Was there a particular point as Public Enemy were coming up, and this is a, a trajectory you describe in the book, at which you realized that some of Public Enemy's language and some of Public Enemy's sounds, but especially the language, were beginning to have an impact in the wider culture? Because I can remember wondering about this myself in the mid-90s when you you started to see riffs on phrases like don't believe the hype, bring the noise and fight the power appearing as headlines in the Wall Street Journal and the Daily Telegraph. And I'm not even sure the sub-editors who wrote those headlines understood what the source material was. Well, I think it was also key that when I wrote the songs, I wrote the titles, keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> Make three words really have to be impactful. I kind of like wrote songs you know, from the title on down. But I think the important thing is to come up with a great title, which comes out of a, a good idea. And if you're able to have a good idea and come up with a great title, then it makes the song structuring and the process of writing something to any type of music, especially if some music is really romping and fits the, the words and really good. It makes it an enjoyable process, Andrew. I get kind of picturesque in my, in my arrangements. I mean... Today, I lingered on longer about, you know, uh, my day because I had to, you know, create and craft three songs for Flavor Flav that I have to sketch out tomorrow. So I had to be able to be a songwriter and I had to really kind of like make pictures with words. But now, you know, also I have the other side of my brain that's able to make words into pictures. So it's gone back and forth. Two-way traffic, Andrew. But when it comes to nailing those phrases, the things that will stick, do you know it now when you hear it in your head or, or are they things that you workshop, that you buff and polish, that you keep thinking that that particular arrangement of syllables isn't quite right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's got to be right. And there's some toss in the turner with it. You know, to me, it's like I'm writing a song called Stay At Me. So it's stay with the at sign at me. And basically it's a song that's telling somebody who has some mental health challenges and might have tendencies to maybe jump on the front of a train or a bus or whatever. It's like, hey, listen, stay with me. You know, I'm going to communicate to you, stay in touch, hold on, that type of stuff. So I had to be able to figure out with that narrative and the meaning of that kind of could go even deeper than words itself. How do I come up with three three words that actually convey it? But then that's no different than people that have been doing it, what they say in the States, Madison Avenue, or in London and headlines and stuff like that. You got to like keep it simple, stupid, nail it to three words or less, or maybe six words or less, and make sure that you put time, thought into the words and, and try to get illustrative about it, you know? 
you mentioned London there, and, and it does come up in the book. We, as you put it, our base, public enemies base, that is, has always been London. And it was London mm. that took to you as a group much before the United States. Have you ever figured out why that was? Why what public enemy was doing really properly landed in London first? Well, the, it was a bunch of factors. The British invasion, as we call it from outside, <laughs> it was like the right place at the right time with the right thing. You know, hip hop music was going from a singles medium in the United States into an album formatted music. And I think when we took on our first album, Your Bummers to Show, we varied with the topics. It wasn't like a, it was an album that was formed out of a bunch of proven hit singles. We had a concept from the very beginning. If you're going to say your influences, The Clash, meet The Black Panthers, meet Iron Maiden, meet Run DMC, Schooly D, it got a whole bunch of things in there in our first swing. Yeah, so we got kind of illustrious with the imagery of Public Enemy, and we had something to say at a turning point that started to make second-generation young black kids in the UK and a lot of open-minded white kids that wanted to know more about this music coming from the States called rap music. And they wanted to know about like the people it came from and no different than, you know, you have a Mick Jagger meets Keith Richards on the platform of a train station and they're art students. They're also aficionados of the hidden universe of the blues in Mississippi. So this was maybe that second layer of something that came out of the United States that wasn't projected by the government or by the elite class or whatever. And it happened came from the underlings of, of a certain society. And this was interesting. And I think that's the thing that drew everybody's curiosity to it. It was public enemy's job to also say, well, with that curiosity, we can add on top of it that we can challenge you know, maybe the other dimensions of your mind with imagery something that you could feel, sight, sound, story, and style. And so uh, Public Enemy took that on, and we put things into it and around it. We're fortunate to to come out of it with something that people's like, wow, it's tangible. It is uh, amazing and, and somewhat terrifying to think that it is now, well, 30 years since that opening salvo of Public Enemy albums, Yo Bum Rush, the show It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, the ones that followed. What do you think of those records now? Do you ever listen to them much deliberately? I don't listen to them much deliberately as I'm taking a long, you know, drive and there's plenty of long driving space in the United States. Sometimes I will listen to an album that I had done in 10 years and say, wow, I would be entertained by it. Like, wow, okay, okay, damn. But I've performed these records for so long that they're almost second nature. So I have to listen to it in the third eye and the third mind and the third ear, so to speak. But they are kind of enjoyable because they actually, they're like tree lines, tree timelines from another time to actually go into the ex. Because I know what every little, you know, Easter egg and those songs are in the lyrics. And then also in the music, I know where the Easter eggs are. So, <laughs> um, but, and, and that's the only time I celebrate because I really don't celebrate like the award shows or somebody giving me, you know, a trophy or a badge or a medal. So I kind of celebrate my own trajectory to myself in the car, you know, in a long drive. And then I got to make sure that I pick it to listen to it. And um, that's that.
You do write in the book, though, about the somewhat surreal moment at which Public Enemy, having started out as this extraordinary outsider project, are inducted uh, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You're introduced by Harry Belafonte, a moment you write about with understandable awe and reverence for the man. But was it always important to Public Enemy to, at some point, be acknowledged like that, to be, well, as you put it in the book, we felt we were properly curated? Yeah, it's very important because you don't speak for yourself. You you speak for, as a team effort for everybody that put in work that might not have the name of Chuck D. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It might not have the attention of, of Andrew today. <laughs> so I speak on behalf of them, and therefore I celebrate their accolades and their victories for having put together something that people consider a masterpiece. So I don't disrespect that, even though I go and cower somewhere else and hide away from that type of stuff. But then I have accountability and a responsibility to speak on the behalf of all the contributors that put in that time and effort and, and not let them be forgotten, you know? You sort of talk about as well the need for hip-hop to be better curated. And I, I guess you made a contribution to that recently with the, the Fight the Power, How Hip-Hop Changed the World series. Is there a concern that you have that it's still regarded as something somewhat faddish and not necessarily part of mainstream popular music? Well, if you don't take anything, you know, it will tend to, to erode be eradicated, somebody else control the narrative of it. And it could easily fade to obscurity if not maintained. And uh, with all the things going on now, past, present, and future, now wrapped up into a screen, because, you know, today people, they listen with their eyes. Many people, you know, wherever you go, they're screen agents. They, they're getting everything that they receive through a screen, even if it's audio like we're doing now. So, I mean, with that in, in mind, I think that there's a thoroughness that we have to get behind and make sure that people know about something within the clutter, you know, musically. I just think that other genres take care of what they have with fervorance and, and some vigor that I at least like to see, like, hip-hop get treated like sticks and foreigner. <laughs> <laughs> And and damn, I would not even say it, Led Zeppelin, at least get treated like Def Leppard. I mean, what the hell, you know? You got to fight for that, for that artistry to be able to curate and narrate the proper way. There is a lovely picture in the book, a portrait you did of yourself and Neil Peart from Rush, who I think was introduced to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at the same time. Um, yes. and, and, you, and, and you're talking afterwards. Can you remember what you talked about? Yeah, he was like, W-H-E-W, like, woo, it's all over, you know? <laughs> and I, it was, we sat at this table, me and Neil Peart, and we said nothing and looked at each other and smiled. And just like, he's like, wow, it's over. <laughs> huh? And I felt the same way, he felt the same way. So it was a quiet moment that I think best was conveyed through the art that I delivered, even more than discussing it right now, because it was very quiet. Everybody was gone, everybody peeled out of the building. And we were back, you know, back behind this, not even the stage. It was, I don't know what it was. It was like the door before the door, the leave. And it was, hey, I had a couple of tables in there. And we just found a second to sit at the table together and just looked at each other. And he's such a nice gentleman. He passed away a couple of years ago. One of Rock and Roll's great losses. 
Going back to the book, there's quite a long coda towards the end reflecting on Donald Trump, which you entitle Fear of a Whack President. And I guess nobody's more entitled to do puns on public enemy titles than you are. He obviously is still in with a chance of being the United States' next president. When you contemplate how that happened and the fact that it happened to Donald Trump of all people, how do you make any sense of that? Do you, for example, buy the idea that he is some sort of out of this backlash to Barack Obama. I think he's an alien. <laughs> um, I, because anybody that, that has this many chances is actually backed with some kind of sorcery that's yet to be explained. Coincidentally, you know, although I'm actually speaking to you about the Genesis book, since I'm talking about art anyway, the company Genesis and my own company, Enemy Books, was is through Akashic. We just released a, a three-volume set of art called Studio. And it's three, it's actually the, on the tail end of, of, you know, Living Loud was my art book, and it's actually gone right into a U.S. release of Studio, which is Nafik Gravels. So I've done these three Nafik Gravels, and, and, and they really seriously <laughs> nailed it day-to-day. It's like almost like I kept a journal day-to-day in 2020 and 2021. And I illustrated every day is happening. So there's a lot of, we call them 45. There's a lot of 45 in the illustrations. And I think Living Loud just touched on a little bit of of how it all started. And it's also mind boggling to uh, to see dude, you know, still in the runnings. That's so much that he's so crazy. But the fan base that he has is maniacal. Well, you do offer a partial suggestion to the appeal. You you liken him to a haunted house that exerts this strange fascination on people to the extent that even after they've seen heads rolling down the stairs, they can't help but go in. Do you think people, and it's possibly a charitable interpretation of what people like about him, but is it just that people find him entertaining? They find him time filling (laughs) (laughs) i I don't know if i have a better explanation than that but he could definitely fill up some time which does bring me back to a point that you make elsewhere in the book and this it does i i empathize you know as a a a middle-aged grouch myself slightly i think but there's there's a sense you give that you feel like people need to work harder, even at the stuff they're enjoying. As you write, not having focus can lead to boredom and overconsumption. Yeah, well, that's one thing I don't have in my vernacular I don't, or in my register. I definitely am the opposite of a person that gets bored (laughs) because I have much to do and I have fun when I do it. I think it'd be different if I was an electrician or I had to dig a ditch or, you know, pick up bricks and, and, and make sure that I can put them over by the shed. But, you know, I don't have to do that. I mean, I do have to do that, those things. But, I mean, not as a living. So I'm never bored. I'm never bored. And I think I'm part of the minority of people on the planet that has art in them that, you know, I know how to get art out of myself. And I think everybody has art in them, but they don't know how to get the art out of themselves. That's why we need better educational systems and trainers and situations that even in the British Isles, they realize that 
what what to do with these you know these World War Two kids who might have not had a father and a country that is trying to rebuild itself. And they say, well, if we don't figure something out, you know, most of the nation is going to be coming from incorrigible kids. And so they gave kids art programs and sports programs. And I think that, that you know, held a fort for a while. So I think art is a beautiful thing. And I think that most of the people in the world are consumers of art, not producers, but you could be taught how to produce and, and get back to the arts as being, to, to me, it's a universal utopian religion well that does prompt the question just finally of what you're working on now what you have coming up are there for example further public enemy recordings being thought about yes it's a process because you know you got to know who you are and what you do i think a lot of people when they're in the music business or i should say quote unquote answer the record business they lose sight of who they are and feel like they they, they got to compete up against the of, of what's out and what's heard and and really you're in competition with yourself so if you're in competition with yourself you got to measure yourself against yourself with a grain of salt and go into maybe some ideas that never been looked at in the same way before so yes i'm, I'm writing songs for flavor because i think this year flavor and we have some time in this year where he can make a big musical statement yeah, he's always going to be a, a, a visual personality, hype man, da-da-da. But I'm helping them write some songs that be very significant. And then there'll be pieces of a record that will be released in 2024 that will be full of sight, sound, story, and style. At the same time, and along that time, I'll be doing maybe, you know, releasing four or five more graphic grovels into the marketplace. Chuck D, thank you very much for joining me on the big interview on Monocle Radio. Chuck D's book, Live and Loud, Art Itation, is available now in hardback. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced and edited by Laura Kramer, Callum McLean, Jack Dewars and Emma Searle. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.